Operation Mobilization and specifically on board uh, one of the ships called the Logos Hope. And right now the ship is in the Philippines. We've just left the Philippines about a week ago, something like that. And uh, the ship is, um, we're based on board, we're living on board, uh, and we are there as uh, leaders within the ship's community. I'm, my role is to, yeah, to be the leader of a, of a group of 400 um, people who love the Lord and just want to learn from Him and serve Him in the different places that we go to. Our primary calling is to, to share the love of Christ, to be a witness for the gospel in the different ports and countries that we go to. And the Lord has given many great opportunities for the ship to go into some of the most unreached places in the world. Just recently we were, for instance, in the Indian Ocean, specifically in the Arabian Gulf area, where we had incredible opportunities to share the gospel with Arab people. Many of them never heard the gospel before. So it's a great privilege that we have, and we're, of course, very excited to be able to serve the Lord in that way, and very thankful that we've got a supporting church like you all that are with us in this ministry. We have, um, as I said, we've been with the ship ministry for a long time. The last 10 years, however, I, uh, Charlotte hasn't been so active with me. That's primarily because we've been based uh, in Germany where we have the head office for the ship ministry. I've been involved in the big project of getting the Logos Hope uh, ready for service. We've done, uh, this is a newer ship. It's a big ship. Uh, ships are measured in tons. And this is a 12,500-ton vessel. That means it's very big. <laughs> but uh, while I've been involved in getting the ship ready for ministry, Charlotte has had another ministry, and I'd like her just to share about that. We've been looking after her mother, who had uh, Alzheimer's. Well, it was 10 years ago that, we, that I have been here in the church, and uh, we left the doulas 10 years ago. And Lloyd took on that, or we took on that project of uh, establishing the Logos Hope. And of course, my expectations were to be involved with Lloyd to do this project. But of course, many times expectations are so different from reality. And when we came home, I knew my mother had Alzheimer's, but then my three brothers, they looked after her, but then they had all jobs. So me as a girl, I guess I felt the responsibility to look after my mother. And this was the reality. I kind of had to look after my mother. Now, I was very innocent in thinking, you know, Alzheimer and I can still get involved. But of course it's not, because it's a very complex sickness. And it was kind of round the clock care. Because it started off slow and then it improved. So my involvement in the Logosope was very different than what I expected. It was more being at home, looking after my mother, and that also getting myself prepared. I discovered that when, uh, you know, we have our own plans, but God has different plans, and they are just perfect. And so God wanted me not only to look after my mother, which it states in 1 Timothy 5.4, it's uh, pleasing to him when we look after our families. So I knew that was good, but at the same time, I also, God wanted to do his work in my life, and this was his plan for my life in order to prepare me and now he called us back to the ship to Logos Hope and I feel very excited being involved and being part in the community. I love working with young people, training them to become Christians, um, you know, be ready to influence the culture when they are leaving the ship. 
and I'm very excited to do that and to build up also the wives and families to help them to train their children so there are lots ahead and I'm very thankful for prayer for you praying fast because without God and without prayer it's not possible so thank you very much yeah. and Charlotte and I we've just been just moved on board the Logos Hope about a month ago uh, we are going to be on board for three years we think that's uh, how we see the future uh, at the moment of course that can change God has a not a habit but he he has a perfect plan as Charlotte mentioned and uh, our response to that perfect plan is simply to listen to him to walk with him and to hold on to him through that uh, journey of faith we really do thank you very much for your prayers for us and we need you to keep praying for us that's just simply because we're, we're normal human beings we face the same struggles and difficulties and challenges that you all face we are praying for you as well perhaps not as you know by name because we don't know everybody but we do pray for God's community here at Sunnybank District Baptist Church and pray that the Lord will be a great will put his hand of blessing upon each of you and that you will know his strength and encouragement every day thank you yeah to pray for us as I mentioned uh, we are on board the Logos Hope I'm the leader on board which means that everybody looks to me for uh, direction for guidance for uh, you know God's word for them I find that a great challenge of course and uh, if I'm to lead the community well my first responsibility is also to be right in the center of God's spotlight in my own life I cannot lead unless I too am walking with the Lord so that's uh, as you pray for us that's certainly the prayer that you can pray every day that Charlotte and I will just keep in uh, the center of God's attention and that we are people that are responding to his work in our lives and I think as we do that then we'll be a, a model and an example to those that we're seeking to encourage and to lead in his ways you go from here to the states yeah we're here for a week uh, and we'd certainly like to catch up with as many people as we can while we're here of course we're also visiting our two children Daniel and Vanessa who are studying here um, and then we leave next Sunday afternoon uh, we fly to the United States where I'm involved in a, um, an annual conference that we have that's a very busy time for us but uh, you know a time when we can also share with others and uh, give the opportunity of others to be involved in the ministry as well and then we return uh, back to uh, the head office in Germany for a few weeks and then back to the Logos Hope in Subic in the Philippines Exciting. yeah Heavenly Father, we come to you again in the very precious name of Jesus, thanking you for Lloyd and Charlotta, for their family. Grateful, Lord, that they are fully obedient to your direction in their life and glad to hear and to be encouraged by their desire to find themselves in the centre of your attention, the centre of the spotlight of your will. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you by your Spirit might keep them there, that you might have your way in their lives individually, their life as a couple, and in their witness to those whom you provide around them. Give them safety in travel to the States, to Germany, and then back to the ship. Give them wisdom in their conversations and the anointing of your Spirit, clarity in the presentations that they'll be doing. Help Lloyd to complete the tasks that he has to do in Germany, and then, Lord, to return to the ship fully available to you and to lead the 400 or so fellow disciples 
that they too might be transformed into the image of Jesus. Thank you for Lloyd and for Charlotte and Lord, we lovingly commit them to you. Protect them from the evil one. Bless them in their marriage and relationship. Bless them in their family. And we are grateful for them in the name of Jesus. Amen. Two announcements. One's in the bulletin to do with Kairos. There's a new course starting up and apparently it starts this Saturday and if you would like to do that, there's a leaflet in the bulletin, you can see that, a yellow one, you can have a read of that and complete it. You need to contact Derek, I think it is, to let him know that you're keen on coming um, so that that course can kick off and go ahead. And the other one is to also next Saturday, the 21st of April, it's a four-wheel drive weekend. So for those of you who are got a four-wheel drive or into this sort of thing, it's a fun drive. So it's bring along... Um, wives and girlfriends and family members I guess there's four stages to the trip and there is a sign up sheet because there are some maps and handouts to be prepared so if you're keen on doing that sort of thing um, they want to meet and leave the church next Saturday by 8am so have a look at the sign up sheet I think there are more details there as well and I commend that to you who has a four wheel drive here in this congregation two three Say again. <clears throat> Is that right? Bruce last weekend went on this thing on this course on his ute. I don't know. He got halfway through first stage and got bogged. So it floated away. That's right. He had to come and be towed out. Sounds like fun. So <clears throat> uh, so there there is an alternate route that you can go on. Well, there you go. If you would like to do that next Saturday, 8 o'clock here at the church, sign up so you can be part of that experience. If you have your Bibles or your electronic devices, turn with me please to Matthew chapter 18. In a moment I'm going to pray, but before I do that, <coughs> as David reminded you, there are these booklets available and we commend those to you. Grab a copy, both to be in your life group or in your connect groups, or perhaps even to do it in small accountability groups, meet up one-on-one with somebody. It's always better to talk about the scriptures with others, bounce ideas off, stretch yourself and your own thinking processes, maybe do it in the family as well, to follow through and talk through the implications and the applications of God's word to us. This morning we are going to, if you like, as we do each Sunday morning and in each of our services, we're going to look in the mirror of God's word and the purpose of looking in the mirror, as James chapter 1 says, is that we observe things about ourselves hair needs doing, you've got a smudge on your face that needs cleaning off or something. You look in the mirror in order to fix yourself up. We look in the mirror of God's word to do the same, to respond, to align ourselves with God's purposes. As Lloyd said, to find ourselves in the centre of God's will. So this morning we're going to look in the mirror of this passage, which is talking about some principles of being in community together, of being in relationships in God's church. We're starting this series on grace. It's a magnificent T-shirt, isn't it? You too can have a T-shirt like this. Just see Pastor David at the end. Slip him 50 bucks and you could have one. It doesn't cost that, but if you slip him 50 bucks, that'll get you. G stands for, as God's grace is manifested in our life, we as a church community are to be genuine, receptive, active, a community of encouragement. That's the vision we spoke about way back at the end of January, early February. That's the focus for us for this year, particularly for this term and each of our service over the next 10 weeks. 
where we are focusing on building loving relationships. It is an internal look, but it's an internal look with a view to us being increasingly healthy that we can be effective in mission for the Lord Jesus. That's what it's about. That as God brings new people in, that they're coming into a safe, healthy community that is on a journey of becoming passionate followers of the Lord Jesus. So this morning, tonight, next Sunday morning, next Sunday night, four talks on G. Following two weeks after that, four talks on R and so on, all the way through. And so the four talks outline the four studies are in this booklet on grace, and I encourage you to grab a copy. I want you to bow with me and to pray because the passage we're going to dive into is going to be a little bit confrontive, I think. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you're a God who has revealed truth to us in the person of your Son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you for your word, the Bible, that has been inspired by your Spirit, given to us that we might be aligned with your will and purposes. Lord, help us not to flinch from, water down or ignore your word, but help us to be fully compliant and obedient to it. So speak to us, help us to understand this passage and what it means for us as a community, as followers of the Lord Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. This passage, Matthew 18, if you've got it open, you'll see that Jesus says that we are to take sin seriously. We only become followers of the Lord Jesus after we in fact do that. We become aware of sin in our life and that we are guilty and accountable before God, that we're heading to him for judgment and that something has to happen with our sin. We come to him and we ask him to forgive us and he does. He gives us a different heart. He replaces our values. It's in the process of growing and changing to become more like him. So we are to take sin seriously in ourselves. That's certainly what he says in the beginning part of this paragraph. You have a look at verse 8 and 9 in chapter 18. That Jesus is reminding us that <clears throat> uh, sin requires some sort of drastic response in us, ourselves. When we are aware of something not right in us, we are to take action. He says, rather extravagant language, that if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands and two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to enter with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell. You'll notice, if you look around, and I certainly do, I have two hands, two feet and two eyes. Does that mean I'm not taking sin seriously? No, Jesus doesn't mean this literally. It's a metaphor, but it's an extreme language stuff of saying you have to do something drastic. When you are aware of sin in your life, take all means and all measures to remove it. Don't place yourself in a situation where you have the possibility, the potential to sin. Take it seriously. Avoid sin. Remove it from your life. That's a journey, isn't it? We are still sinful. We are forgiven. But we are not as bad as we used to be and we're not yet as good as we need to be. And we're not yet as holy as we're going to be. So it's a journey that we must not give up on and it must not excuse and back off from, but to be committed to, to take sin seriously in our own lives. Okay, got it. 
Jesus also says we are to take sin seriously when we see it in somebody else's life. I have a responsibility for myself, but now as a follower of the Lord Jesus, I also have an obligation, I have a responsibility to my brothers and sisters who are part of my church community. The family that I belong to, I have some covenant obligations with. This is where it gets maybe a little bit uncomfortable because perhaps we're not used to dealing with this and Jesus is reasonably clear in what he requires of us. So how do we deal with sin when we see it in somebody else? Well, I know when I mess up, when I stumble, when I stuff up, when I do something wrong, when I say something wrong, and who of us doesn't, James says, then I would like people to be gracious, merciful, forgiving, compassionate towards me. What happens when somebody sins against me? What happens when I'm the recipient of some sinful behaviour? Someone says something or does something that's hurtful. Well, then I want justice on them. And what happens if I'm not involved? What happens when I see someone hurt or say something, do something, somebody else, and it hurts them, it harms them? What do I do then? Well, it's just as easy. Just close your eyes. Just ignore it. Just... It's their business, isn't it? Isn't that what we normally do? Not all, but generally speaking. We've bought into what our culture says to us, that we are to be tolerant and uh, individualism. It's uh, what they do is their business. It's got none of my business. And, well, the Lord Jesus in this passage is saying to us and reminding us, actually, if you're part of my family, then you have an obligation, a responsibility towards one another. In the paragraph before we come to the verses 15 to 17, uh, the Lord Jesus uses another picture, and it's about family relationships. It's verses 12 to 14, where he says, What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? If he finds it truly, I tell you, he's happier over that one sheep than over the ninety-nine that didn't wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any one of these little ones, these young disciples, your Heavenly Father is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. What's my responsibility when one of us drifts? 99's still here, but one's not here. One has forsaken the assembling of ourselves together. One has given in to temptation. One has been tricked or stumbled during the week and starting to drift, coming under the influence of others. What's my responsibility? Well, the world says, not my responsibility, nothing to do with me, it's their choice. Jesus says, your Heavenly Father is concerned about that one person who's drifting and he wants you to go pursue them, to find them, to bring them back. Not to force them, but to pursue them, to love them, to reach them bring them back into the fold. That's what we are to do when one of us drifts. We have a responsibility to one another. Well, you see, that means, therefore, we must, as a church and as this congregation, we must raise the ante a little bit on noticing absentees and perhaps instituting some sort of accountability and follow-up program of noticing and reaching out to. 
there has to be some sort of response like that because our Heavenly Father is not willing that any of those sheep who are drifting do so. He wants the rest of the flock to find them. What happens if the person hasn't drifted away? What happens if the person is still coming, still part of the church family, but is drifted in terms of behaviour? They are misbehaving. Well, Jesus says, verse 15 and following, if your brother or your sister sins, does something clearly wrong, go and point out their fault. Don't just ignore it. Just between the two of you, one-on-one. If they listen to you, you have won them over. If they don't listen to you, well, there's something else for you to do. So what happens when we observe sin in somebody else's life? Well, Jesus gives us some very clear steps to follow. And we may feel a little bit uncomfortable with this, particularly if you understand the implications of it. Some people will not want to do this because they will justify it by saying, Jesus said if someone smacks you on the right cheek, what are you to do? Turn to them the other also. Someone does something wrong to you, don't retaliate. Some people will say, um, Jesus said we should take the log out of our own eye before we go trying to get little specks out of other people's eyes. So therefore, I shouldn't try and get specks out of people's eyes. And yet in this passage, Jesus is saying, if you see your brother or sister commit a sin, go and show him his fault. How do those two fit together? Don't judge between judging, telling them what they're doing wrong. Well, it does fit together, as we'll come to. Or didn't Jesus tell a parable about weeds and wheat growing up together and the disciples said, do you want us to pull the weeds out? And Jesus said, no, let the wheat and the weeds grow together. And then when the kingdom comes, the weeds will be removed. Isn't that a picture of the church? Weeds and wheat, believers and unbelievers sort of mixing together and were to leave them that way, let God be the judge. Or perhaps some would even say, like the story of the woman caught in adultery, he who is without sin, let them be the first one to cast a stone. Who doesn't have sin here? Oh, all of you. Oh, we can't cast stones, we can't judge, we can't accuse that other person. And some people understand, use that verse to not follow through on what Jesus says here. Well, Jesus does say pretty unmistakably here, if you see your brother or sister sin, if your brother sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. Jesus is clearly saying, if there is sin in yourself, deal with it drastically. Amputate, remove. If you see sin in another brother or sister, there is also a response which is required. And the Lord Jesus outlines this response for us. We're certainly to be gentle and gracious. We're to be cautious and careful. But we are to be clear and serious. We are not to ignore, but we are to act. Is this for every little thing? No. It's when I see sin. It's not just simply my opinions. Let's work through it. The situation is this. 
for their brother or sister has done something, it's a sin. It's probably a perpetual habit or practice, but even so, if it's a, a significant thing, it's based upon a relationship. It's my brother or my sister. We are not talking about strangers. We're not talking about the world community. If we, if we see things wrong there, Jesus is not necessarily instructing us that we are to be the sin sniffers of the community, and that we are to be the righteous, holy few who will rebuke sin wherever we see it. He's talking internally. He's talking about those who are in relationship with us, brothers or sisters, someone who is part of our church, someone who is a fellow believer, someone who also confesses faith in Christ, has probably been baptised, has joined the church and belongs to this community. There is an obligation that we have towards one another. So it's brother or sister. Secondly, it's sin. If I see my brother or sister sin, and sin is something which is in the scriptures. It's not my personal opinion. I don't think Christians should drink coffee. It's a hypothetical. I don't believe that. It's, I think Christians should drink coffee. But if your opinion is, and some people do have this opinion, that Christians ought not to take anything into their body which is harmful or addiction forming. They don't have coffee, they don't smoke, they don't drink alcohol. So when they see a brother or sister drink coffee, smoke or drink alcohol, they feel that that is wrong. But it's not in the Bible. Getting drunk is in the Bible. You can go and share with them the implications of what it means for your body to be a temple of the Holy Spirit. But it's not a sin. It has to be a sin that we're talking about. You can open your Bible and flip to it and it actually says, you shall not. Or avoid. It's a sin that we're talking about. And it's also something, it's a sin that you see or that you hear directly. If I see my brother or sister sin, go and show them the fault. It's not if I hear about it secondhand. What do you do if you hear about it secondhand, by the way? We are people who live in a fallen world and there are times when we do say things, there are times when I say things that I ought not about somebody else to somebody else. And I can rationalise it, I can justify it over, I'm sharing this because I'm trying to get it clear in my own head and heart and mind and yada yada yada. Or I'm just downloading, I'm just venting. And if it's just letting off steam and frustration, well that's one thing. But if I'm talking about a brother or sister and I'm talking about a particular fault that they have, specifically if it's a sin, then I am wrong to behave that way. Because Jesus is very clear. If I see my sister or brother sin, I am to go and see them and no other. I'm not to talk to anybody else about it. I'm to talk to them about it privately. And there's a very good reason for it that I'll come to. What do you do, though, if you are the recipient of second-hand information? Well, my suggestion is this. You need to stop the person. They're telling you about that person over there. Stop. Ask a question. How do you know that's true? Because you saw it, because you heard it, or because you've heard from somebody else. At this stage, it's gossip. It's you passing on information which is harmful and maybe even derogatory of another person. Stop. How do you know this is true? What you need to do is go see that person. 
If necessary, I'll come with you. We'll go together. More confrontively, you need to go see that person and have this conversation with them. Next time I see that person, I will tell them what you just told me. When we start behaving like that together, that will stop, that will decrease this very sinful habit of talking about rather than talking to. We need a strategy, don't we, to cope with that. A softer version is to say to the person, which is on occasions what I've done, uh, have you seen the person? No. Well, I think you have to go see the person. The Bible says that. You need to talk to them about that. I'll give you a time frame. You tell me. One week, two weeks, in which you're going to contact them, see them and talk about it. And in whatever the time frame is, one week or two weeks, I'm going to contact them. And I'm going to ask them, have you spoken to them? And if they say no, then I will tell them what you told me. It's to raise the ante of truthfulness and accountability to one another. Not letting ourselves get away with it. So brothers and sisters, if you hear me talking to you about somebody else, and particularly if it's a sin that I'm talking to you about, then stop me and ask me how I know. And then ask me, have I been to see them? And if I haven't, then you encourage me. Well, Daryl, you need to go see them. You have a week. And in a week, I will ask them. You hold me accountable. And I will hold you accountable. If I see my brother or sister, someone I'm in relationship with, sin, serious thing, a sin, then I am to go see them privately, one-on-one. I am to speak to them and to no other. Why? Well, I might be wrong. I might have misseen, misheard, misjudged. I could have it completely wrong. I need to go talk to them and no one else and make sure this is what it is and then we can deal with it. Before I do go and see them, I recommend that you do some consideration. Some other passages of Scripture would instruct us that we should consider carefully what we are going to say and how we are going to say it. Contents as well as tone. We're not going as superior judges, pointing and waving the finger and condemning and judging. We're not doing that. Now we're sinning by behaving like that. But rather think carefully how I'm going to present this truth. Sinning King David's need a prophet like Nathan who can tell a story in such a way to get under the resistance and say, that's what you did. Check the scriptures. Make sure that what is a sin is in the scriptures. Examine your own life before you go. That's what Jesus said. Take the log out of your own eye before you go try and take specks out of somebody else's. It could be, and often in the providence of God's working, You'll notice weaknesses and sins in other people which are in fact in you. You know, you point one finger at a person, you've got three pointing back, because it's your own weakness. We sometimes see that in others more clearly. So check your own life. That doesn't mean you don't go and have the conversation, but it means you have it humbly. You do it after you've confessed, after you've repented. You don't come as the superior one, you come as a fellow struggler. So clarifying your own heart and mind, you're, going to, you're aiming to help 
not to condemn, not to judge. You're not there to punish. You're there to raise the awareness of and maybe even to offer a solution. Okay, so you've made the decision. I'm going to go see them. I've thought about it. I've prayed about it. I've examined the scriptures, prepared my heart and soul. I now ring them. I contact them. I, whatever it is, I get in touch with them. I need to see you. I need to have a coffee with you. I need to have a chat with you. I'm not talking about crime. I'm talking about the behavioural sin. This passage does not apply to criminal behaviour. This passage is not the instruction for some victim of crime. It's not what a victim of sexual abuse has to do, that they have to go confront the perpetrator. No, what the victims of crime have to do is report the crime to the authorities. And 1 Corinthians 6 would teach us that the proper authorities initially are the church leaders and then the church leaders will direct them to the appropriate civil authorities. Crime gets dealt with in a slightly different way. There is sin to be repented of, but there is crime to be dealt with. Repentance. No, we're not talking about that. We're talking about sin, a behaviour, which is having an impact in the community and in this person's life. It's something that has to be faced and dealt with. So you've set up a private meeting, you go and see them. It's our responsibility to obey this command of the Lord Jesus, not to scold them or verbally abuse them, but as I said, to bring it to their attention. If they listen, then the Bible says, Jesus says, that you've won them back, which suggests they are a person of value and esteem. They're the lost sheep, the one of the hundred, that the Father says, this person is important to him. Statistically unimportant, one in a hundred. But everyone is important to our Heavenly Father, and therefore as we walk with him, that ought to be our response, that everyone... Everyone is important to him and therefore to us. If they listen, you've won them back. You've regained the resource and the treasure that God has provided to the church community. And that's the goal, to win them back. The goal is not to throw people out. The goal is not to embarrass people. The goal is not to be self-righteous or play the judge. It's to bring them back. That's if they listen. What if they don't? And the normal, natural, sinful reaction is always to be defensive, to be resistant, not to be open and compliant, which is what R stands for, of being receptive when people are speaking the truth to us. Now, what happens if they don't listen? What if they refuse to admit, no, it's not a problem? Well, Jesus says, don't give up, don't stop, don't quit. It's rather implied is to withdraw, be patient, and this time take somebody else, another one person, maybe two. They could be trained mediators, we ought to do that in our church, or they could be church leaders, or they could be just close friends. It would be very helpful if it's someone whom the other person respects. Because the goal is you're not taking one or two others with you to gang up on them to win the argument. You're taking one or two others to assist in the process of reconciliation and their primary role is that they are witnesses. They are there to witness both my conversation and the response of the other person. That they can confirm that, yep, this is a matter that has to be dealt with, this is sin, 
and we have observed the resistance, the hard-heartedness, the defiance or whatever it is. So take one or two others with you. Don't give up. Arrange the second meeting. Tell the person, I need to see you again and I'm bringing this person with me or these two people with me and this is serious. You know, we love you, we care for you, we want you part of our church community. We just don't want to ignore this sinful behaviour or habit. It's damaging to you, it's hurtful to the church, it's certainly dishonouring to the Lord Jesus. Let's meet. What if they don't want to meet? What can you do? You can't force it. You can pray. Lord, please soften their heart. Please make them willing to talk about this. Please give them a heart of repentance to change. What if they just leave? The process of talking to them the first time, they're so hurt, they're so offended, they're maybe exposed, caught, and they just vote with their feet. They go to the church down the road. What do you do? Or what if they go to no church? Well, I think if that reaction happens, then it's the parable of the lost sheep thing kicks in. They're starting to drift. So go pursue them. Seek them. Seek to win them. Don't give up on them. Pray for them. No, you can't force them. But you can pray and you can try to contact. And if they want to sever all ties and all relationships, then you will grieve and you will suffer loss. But at the end of the day, if they choose not to repent, not to be honest about sin, not to react in the way the Lord Jesus wants, then it's better that they are not part of the community, as sad as that is. They're like a wolf in sheep's clothing. And wolves in sheep's clothing need to be removed. That's serious stuff, isn't it? We have an obligation to one another as followers of the Lord Jesus. So you go to the second meeting, you have the witnesses, and if they listen, well, that's terrific. Well, then all those witnesses have to keep that conversation totally confidential. It never gets repeated. gets buried in the depths of the sea in their own consciences and minds, and they take it with them to the grave. If he doesn't listen to the two or the three, well, then Jesus says, call the church community together. See, this is of such a serious nature that I have to have a conversation with you about it. You ignore that. Well, I just can't now ignore your reaction, your response. I have to take two or three others and try to bring correction here. You ignore that. I now have to an obligation to inform everybody. And Jesus doesn't tell us exactly how to do that, but I would imagine that the person who initiated the conversation is going to give their side of the story, that the witnesses will testify... And maybe even that person is present. It would be good if they were. Because you see, the purpose is not judgment. The purpose is about reconciliation. And if they can hear the whole church respond to this, that will be helpful. What happens if he ignores the church? Well, then Jesus says that we are to treat him like a tax collector and a Gentile. What does that mean? Well, some people say when Jesus said that, we are to treat him like Jesus treated tax collectors and Gentiles. How did Jesus treat tax collectors? Matthew, the guy who's writing this, used to be a tax collector. Well, Jesus used to eat with tax collectors and 
hang out with tax collectors and accept them as people with a view to moving them towards God's kingdom rule in their life. Is that what he means? I don't think so. I think what the Lord Jesus means when he says to his disciples, treat them as you, as you culturally, as Jewish people treat Gentiles, and as you culturally, Jewish people treat tax collectors, what do you do? You avoid them. You remove them. They are no longer treated as brothers and sisters closely in the kingdom. They are behaving like people who are not submissive to the Lordship of Christ. Love, pray for, reach out to, but don't hold close. Be on guard. The best analogy I could come up with, imagine that sin is like alcoholism and that we are all alcoholics and we admit that we have a sin problem, we have an alcoholic problem, and someone comes amongst us who says that they're an alcoholic, but they don't wrestle with it. They get drunk all the time. What must we do? Avoid. Remove. Love and reach out to, but they have to come to a point of their own confession that they can't have this dominating their life. Well, replace alcoholism with sin. We are all sinners. We all stumble and fall. But we cannot associate with somebody who is blatantly disregarding God's word, God's will. Repent of sin. We are to have a drastic attitude towards sin in ourselves and we are to have a responsibility when we see sin in somebody else. This is countercultural. It's not what we do in our world. Why don't we do this? Oh, because it could be too embarrassing. Maybe because we justify, I don't want to be a judge. And yet God's word is clear. We might worry that we're going to lose the relationship. Well, you need to think that through. You may. But your relationship and commitment to the Lord Jesus must come first. I must do his will. My commitment and love for my brothers and sisters must come before this relationship. And if I'm frightened of losing this relationship with a person who is defiant and rebellious, who is sinning, and not wanting to own it or deal with it. If I want to hang on to this relationship, then potentially I dishonour the Lord and I harm my brothers and sisters. As is balance, this stretching experience of us demonstrating genuine love, real love for this person, will ask them to give it up. It's not good for you. Stop the sin. Abandon it. You will appear before God for judgment. Be ready for that day. Don't indulge in the sin. Well, maybe we don't do this because we've never really seen it done. We've never done it before and we don't really know how to do it. Well, end of the day, there might be understandable, but it's an excuse, isn't it? We need to find out how to do it. Follow what the Bible says. Go and see the person and you won't have it all together. You haven't done it before and you be honest. I'm going to fumble this, I'm going to stumble this. It's, I'm not here to hurt you, I just want to have this conversation. It's difficult for me as it's going to be for you to hear it. Be patient with one another, grow together. The Lord Jesus says if they don't listen to the church, then you are to treat them as a tax collector and as a Gentile. And what he means by that is that you have to ask them to not attend. They refuse to deal with their sin. 
they're still indulging the practice, they are still behaving the way they are, whatever it is, ask them, please don't come. Don't come to the congregation. If you're in a life group, please don't attend. If you're in a ministry, I want you to step down. I don't want you to associate with the church members. You are excluded. The word is excommunicated. You are on the outer. It's very serious, isn't it? And it can easily be misunderstood. But the motivation for it and the reason for it, you have sinned that you are not wanting to admit or deal with or forsake. This is how serious this is. Give up the sin. We're not excluding them. We're not excommunicating them because they have sinned. We're excommunicating, we're excluding because they refuse to repent. It's that attitude of defiance, of I can indulge my sinful life, I can live hypocritically, I can live inconsistently with what Jesus requires of me. You're living harmfully. This is a brother or sister, someone who, I love God, I love Jesus. Well, you don't live that way. You're a dangerous person. You're behaving like a wolf in sheep's clothing. Please don't come to the congregation. Please don't attend life group. Please don't attend ministry. Please don't associate with any members of the church. If that doesn't break their heart, if that doesn't move them to repentance, and sometimes it will, God will use that exclusion to bring them to their senses. So we need also to inform all of those ministries and life groups and so on to be careful in their relationship with this person. To pray for them? Absolutely. To love them? Yes. But the Bible uses these sorts of words, and this gets uncomfortable, but to not eat with them. So it's not to treat them as if nothing has happened. It's to avoid them, stay away from contact, to have nothing to do with. Wow. What if they ring and ask to have coffee? Well, have the coffee. They're paying. But talk to them about sin. This sin. Hold their feet to the fire. You don't let go of that conversation. Have you repented? Have you dealt with this? No, I haven't. Well, then what else have we got to talk about? Well, how's the church and how is so-and-so going? All of that. Well, I can't tell you. You're on the outside. Come back. Repent. Come back in and we can love you like the father in the prodigal son story. You'll be welcomed back gladly and gloriously. It's our concern for them which ought to give us strength in holding them accountable. To not do so is not to be loving towards them. And let me understand, be clear, it's not judging them because they are sinners, it's judging them and acting this way because they refuse to deal with their sin. They're behaving as unbelievers. Let me emphasise again, we are not super spiritual. We are not the sin sniffers, the sin police, nor are we the final judges. And you know stories or you would have heard of or you see it portrayed in movies. It's so easy to just get this wrong. 
see something wrong, you go have a conversation, but the tone is wrong, the attitude is wrong, it's top down, it's judgmental, it's finger pointing, it's you're out, good, you're gone, and it's none of that. And yet, that's how it's often done. That's not what Jesus is teaching. He's asking us to lovingly correct, reach out to. What happens if it doesn't work? Don't give up. Take one or two others to help. Reach out to, lovingly correct. Doesn't work. Tell everybody. We have to reach out to these people. Pray for them. They're getting it wrong. Best thing we can do is to remove them. Best thing we can do, Jesus says, remove them. John MacArthur says these words, and it's the flip side of this. It's an indictment against the church. So it's an ouch. Quote. But it's a mirror. Let's hold it up and have a look in it and say, well, are we like that? And if we are, then we better break that mirror and change the image. John MacArthur writes about another Christian who once said this. He said, I have often thought that if I ever fall into sin, if that's ever me, if I get into that situation... Then he says, Lord, don't let me fall into the hands of those censorious, critical judges in the church. Don't let me fall into the hands of the church. Let me fall into the hands of the barkeeper, the street walkers, the dope peddlers. Why? This person says, because so often church people would tear people apart with their long, wagging, gossipy tongues, cutting people to shreds. Sad, isn't it? And sometimes, often, true. Let that not be true of us. That's not what Jesus is asking us to do. Rob Parson makes a similar comment when he gives his series on the prodigal son. He has a beautiful line. He has some great applications. The fourth one is this, that when the prodigal son who has sinned, who has drifted, who comes to his senses, finds his way home, finds ready acceptance by the Father because he's repented, because he's given up his sin. He is restored and welcomed back. The fourth point of application that Rob Parsons gives is pray for the prodigals, that when they come back, pray that they'll meet the Father before they meet the older brother who wasn't happy to see him back. We need to be like the Father of the older brother. Summary, what has the Lord Jesus said to us? Well, he says that when you're in relationship with him, we are to take sin seriously in ourselves and to take drastic measures to cut it out. Not to compromise, not to water it down or excuse it, cut off hands, feet, gouge out eyes. Drastic self-denial. If I see sin in another brother or sister that I'm in a relationship, in a community with, then I am to speak to them. It's what I see, what I hear. Not second-hand, it's direct, it's first-hand. I'm reporting what I see. And I only say it to them. I don't say it to anybody else. And I'm talking about sin, not personal opinions. I am there to help, not to hurt them or to harm them, but assist them to being obedient to the Lord Jesus. We do it because the Lord Jesus commands it. He instructs this is what we must do. We are to do it in private because we might have it wrong. If we get it right and we're doing it in private and it doesn't work, don't give up. Take one or two others along. We must likewise keep it totally confidential unless that doesn't work. 
then we inform the church and we pray like crazy and we seek to reach out to but we have to hold them apart we have to hold them accountable out of our love for them and our love for God this morning we've looked into the mirror of God's word and we have seen this pretty clear instruction it's difficult but clear we have to make a choice on the basis of looking in the mirror and understanding what God wants me to do what's my response am I willing to be obedient the truth we know must be demonstrated what the Bible says must be shown in our lives Augustine says this and I'm going to finish with this quote Augustine was a church father back about the 400s he said if we want Christ's blessing on our church where we meet then three things one we are not to consent to evil don't consent to sin in another and there inadvertently approve it don't consent to it nor are we to ignore it so as not to reprove it and nor are we to be so proud that when we reprove it we do so in a tone of insult or superiority but rather we see sin we are to humbly approach and to bring a word of correction and pray that they will experience God's love as they repent and that we bow together pray together Heavenly Father we ask this morning that you might begin with us that you might turn the searchlight upon our hearts that you might search us O God see if there is anything wrong in us any wicked way in us bring it to our minds help us Lord to repent of our own sin cleanse us purify us give us clean hands then Lord give us a willingness in our heart that if we're in a situation where we see a dear brother or sister say something or do something which is not right which is contrary to your word which is a sin give us a willingness and a courage to have these difficult conversations not as judges but as fellow brothers and sisters and because we have a commitment to want to deal with sin and to remove it that the church might be purified and that Jesus might be glorified that he might be honoured in how we live and how we live together so Lord thank you for teaching us we pray that you might Help us to be compliant and obedient. We ask in your name.